Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Good morning, church. I'll be reading from John three sixteen through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, so that his deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds will be revealed. Amen. 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 I do not have the PowerPoint clicker, so... Somebody help me out. I appreciate it. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of our members here, as well as a number of guests today. Uh, we're glad you're able to be out with us. Glad you braved this, um, I don't know if this is uh, uh, some mixture between Red Bud and Dogwood winter yet, or if we ain't even started those, but everything's a little earlier this year, so uh, the Red Buds are blooming, that's for sure. I haven't noticed that the Dogwoods are yet, but I'm counting. Uh, so, but it's good to see y'all. I'm glad you're able to be here, and uh, what a joy it is to be able to worship God. Just want to uh, share my joy, having my hand uh, led by God's Spirit, a practical study of Galatians 5, 22 through 26, published by Heritage Christian University Press, their Berean series. This is uh, uh, to God's glory, the fourth book that has been published that I have been blessed to be a co-author of, so I'm very thankful for that. And so our brothers that teach, at some point in time, you might just find this in your hands, uh, ready to teach a Bible class with, I don't know, it's the thought crossed my mind. So I thought I'd share that with y'all. Uh, what a great year this has been so far, amen? Uh, what a wonderful year to be the great church, to be blessed by God, uh, to be able to be part of this fellowship, and I have very much enjoyed what we have been talking about this year. Thank you, by the way. Uh, I have very much enjoyed what we have been talking about this year because well, my favorite thing in the world is to talk about my favorite person in the world, and that is Jesus our Lord. And we've talked about him as the Son of Man and focused on the humanity of Christ. We've been talking about the Son of God, Jesus uh, as deity, the deity of Christ for the past several weeks. And we're going to bring this series uh, to its close today, and Lord willing, uh, start our next one next week. Uh, but our scripture reading all during this series has been the book of John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. And in everything we've talked about, in talking about the deity of Christ and all of the, 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 the proof of the deity of Christ and in, uh, in, in uh, talking about those that have arguments against that, that reject the truth about Christ and answering their objections, we've come to lay the framework to look at this great passage, one of the most well-known and beloved passages in the Bible. And so I want us to read this together today, John 3, Verses 16 through 21, I'll be reading the New King James Version. It's page 940 
if you're following along in your pew Bibles. John 3, 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world. Jesus, of course, is the light. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Now the latter part of this passage teaches us of what uh, the, the light coming into a person's life does. The light coming into a person's life, one who embraces the light, one who wants to be of the truth and to believe the truth and obey the truth as Jesus is the truth. Uh, this person is, is recognizes when, whenever a person comes into the light of the truth of the Word of God, the light shines upon us right down to the core of who we are. And that means that nothing about us is hidden before the eyes of God. Now, listen, brothers and sisters, it, this is true regardless of your strategy for dealing with God, regardless of your strategy for dealing with your sins, it remains true that each one of us is naked and exposed before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's what Scripture teaches. There's nothing secret about you from God. The person who understands what God has done for him or her, who understands at least the basics of the gospel, comes into the light and says, yes, I am coming out and confessing, I'm, I'm, I'm revealing, I'm being transparent, I'm being exposed about my weaknesses, about my failures, about my sins. I'm not hiding those things. Lord, I'm letting your light shine on them because I reject them. And I want to stand in your light until it changes me so that these sins that I'm ashamed of, that you're ashamed of, God, are no longer a part of the way that I think and speak and live. That's what a person does who has truly understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone, on the other hand, who does not want their sins to be exposed, has not yet given Jesus the respect that he deserves, has not yet come to understand really the truth of who he is and what he's done for us, is the kind of person that says to the preacher, I ah, got a little too close to home today. I really wish maybe you'd be a little softer on me, a little easier on me. You know, after all, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, my, my good deeds outweigh my, my bad. You know, why do you have to harp on these things, you know, that, that, I'm a, that, you know, that I would rather nobody know? Well, listen, God knows about those things. If you truly do believe in Jesus the way the Bible teaches you to believe in Jesus, don't try to hide your sins. If you're living in the shadows, in other words, if you're not wanting to be exposed for what you really are, and in case... In case anybody here needs, I guess, this much clarification, everybody in this room that is of an age of an accountability or older has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, verse 23. Everybody in this room has thought ugly thoughts that you're ashamed of, that you're happy that more people don't know. If it's not true, say not true. You know it's true. Everybody in this room has had a lustful thought that you're ashamed of. 
Everybody in this room has struggled with pride in some way or another. You, you've got something inside of you, some, some sense about you in, in which you think you're better than other people. If you let, that, if you let it loose, you, you would pursue that line of thinking and you would exalt yourself above your fellow man. Listen, I'm just telling you what you already know is true, that these are aspects of fallen humanity. And everybody in this room struggles with something that you're ashamed of, that really, push come to shove, you'd rather nobody else in this room know about. And that's the truth. It's true about me. It's true about y'all. It's true about every one of us. Now, so we can either pretend like things aren't the way that they are. We can pretend like, uh, like everything is in order in our lives perfectly and we don't struggle with anything anymore. We've got everything figured out and, and all of our weaknesses have been tamed and handled. That beast that God warned Cain about, that, that sin crouching at, at the door that we're supposed to, we can say, I've got that handled. Man, I just don't struggle anymore. And, and if, if that's the kind of front you're going to put onto the church, well, then Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees that they were whitewashed tombs on the, on the outside. They were all painted up and looked pretty, but on the inside full of dead men's bones. That, that will be the truth of you. And that's ultimately what this passage is teaching in its culmination. If you are Jesus' man, if you are Jesus' woman, you bring everything that you are into the light of his inspection. To be seen by him, to be known by him, to be confessed to him, laid down at his feet, trusting and knowing that he is the only person that can free you from the guilt that those sins occur and who can transform you on the inside so that you can one day overcome them. That's what a Christian is. A sinner saved by the grace of God. A sinner transparent about his or her weaknesses struggling against them openly. But if you think you're going to try to, ele to, to be elevated in the eyes of your brothers and sisters, if you, you want them to think of you better than you are, well, then you might just slink around in the shadows. But I warn you, if that's where you're living your life, you're living your life where the power of Satan is. And it will not work out well for you. As embarrassing as it may be to do what Brother Kennedy did today, what I've done in the past and many of us have done in the past when we've had sins in our lives, especially things that, that our brothers and sisters may have known about. As, as embarrassing as it may be to confess that you've sinned before your brothers and sisters in Christ, it's the right thing to do. And more of us probably ought to do it more often than we do just to live out the principle of the latter portion of this passage. Now, that's all I'm going to say about the latter portion of the passage. I just wanted to make sure that you understand this whole context. Many of you, especially of you guys that are old hats at this church thing, have been around uh, the church for long enough time, you've probably heard somebody somewhere preach uh, the greatest text in the Bible, and that's usually what they will name the text of John 3.16, and this is just copied from old sermon material in past years, predate my existence on this earth, and when you see the these and thous in here, you'll know that's true because I don't preach from the these and thous text. Nothing against them. I just preach from modern English. But uh, this is the way that the sermon usually goes. For God, the greatest giver, so loved to the greatest degree. You can't love anything more than to so love it, right? So God so loved. He so loved. The greatest degree. The world, the greatest company. The largest group of people possible, that's the object of God's love. That he gave the greatest sacrifice, his only begotten son, the greatest gift. That whosoever, the greatest opportunity 
It's available to anyone. Believeth, or whoever believes, the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest attraction. Jesus is the best. Should not perish, the greatest promised, but the greatest difference, have the greatest, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. Everything in John 3.16 talks about the greatest the greatest way to experience existing, to respond to the, to the greatest offer that has ever been given, that offer that has been made by the greatest being that could ever possibly exist, this passage is a very important and very powerful one beyond our ability to express. Now, there's a, world, there's a word in John 3.16, and that word is world, which comes from the Greek word cosmos. Now, in the Greek, it is spelled with kappa, or what we would say is a K, whereas in English, we spell it with a C, but it's exactly the same word, and roughly, it means exactly the same thing. Now, in English today, when we use the word cosmos, we're usually talking about the universe, the, the whole of the universe, we're talking about the cosmos, uh, and the Greeks sometimes were as well, but it's the word that is translated as a word in John 3.16, and uh, or world, rather, in John 3.16, it does not refer to the ground. It does not refer to the planet. When, when cosmos is used the way it's used in John 3.16, it, re, it refers to the system of things that constitutes the, the whole of human civilization. So God so loved the world. What this means is God so loved all the people of the world, but not just that he loved the people. This is where John 3.16 becomes such a radical passage when we understand what's being said. God didn't just love all the people everywhere. I think most of us grant that. We get that in a real fundamental sense. God so loved the cosmos, the system that people use to organize themselves in this world. God so loved the various cultures. Listen, God so loved the various cultures of this world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved the politics of this world that he gave his only begotten son. The organized system of life in which human beings organize themselves into civilizations. That is the meaning of cosmos in this passage. And when we realize what that represents, this passage becomes the mind-blowing truth that, that it really is. The mind-blowing truth that ought to draw us to our knees in tears, in awe of the heart of our God. Because it is the cosmos that is in rebellion against him. It is human cultures that have put, put themselves together over generations of traditional practice that have embedded within them the various cultures of our different nations and our different areas of the world, Western Civ, Eastern Civ, and all the different parts of civilization that make it up. Those cultures have encoded within them little bits sometimes and big bits oftentimes of things that are absolutely the antithesis of what God is for, things that are in open rebellion against him. The, the culture of the United States of America as a whole is in open, blatant, defiant rebellion against God. And it, it's part of the cosmos, the system of things through which we as humans organize ourselves together into civilizations. And the Bible says, literally in this passage, what is being told to us is that God so loved the rebels that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish 
whichever rebel believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm confident when you realize who you are, if you're the kind of person that John 3, 16 through 21 is talking about that comes to the light, if you're the kind of person who through the preaching of the Word of God has been brought to realize that you're one of the rebels, that you're part of the problem, you're not an exception to that. The rebels aren't all, brothers and sisters, the rebels, the rebels aren't all out there somewhere. The rebels are in this room today. And the rebels aren't just in this room. The, the rebel, the rebellion is in here, brothers and sisters. It's in our hearts. Even as baptized believers, we continue to struggle on a daily basis with the teachings that the Lord has given us to believe and obey. We continue to struggle against them because the spirit of rebellion is embedded into the fallen heart of humanity in this sinful world. And so when I realize that I'm a part of the cosmos here, I'm a part of the cultural rebellion against God, I'm a part of the system of things that very often is working against everything that God stands for and what he wants to be in, in, in the world. And when I realize that God so loved this, that he so loved me in spite of the fact that I spat on his face as a young man when I rebelled against him. And that sometimes even today as a 47-year-old preacher of the gospel, I still do stupid, foolish things that are sinful against God. And he hates it, but he doesn't hate me. He loves me. And he loves you so very much, so very much that he gave the greatest gift that could be given. And this passage says that whoever believes, and I, I have to talk about what that means because it is a, an often misunderstood statement. And if someone is going to receive the blessing of John 3.16 in context, we've got to understand what it means in its biblical context. Because there are lots of folks that go out and, and, and they quote John 3.16. You know, I used to see watching a ball game on TV, there was always somebody in the audience holding up a John 3.16 sign. I see it less and less, sadly which is a statement of the culture, the world, the cosmos, continuing to double down on what it does best, which is be in rebellion against God. But every now and then you still see it, of course, and, and, and there's still a great number of folks in, in our culture today that are familiar with John 3, 16, and oftentimes folks will teach, you know, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. All you've got to do is just come to the mental decision that you believe in Jesus, and man, it is done. You are saved and fully saved and totally saved and forever saved, I want you to understand that as, as much as that sounds great, that's not actually what John 3.16 is saying at all. And when you understand it in context, it's, it's not that it, is, that, it, that it is disagreeing with that statement. It's just that that statement needs to be developed. It needs to be developed with the whole of the New Testament and the whole of the biblical context in mind so that we understand what is being saved. Or what is being said, rather. I want us to look at two passages together just to get an idea of how salvation works according to the Christian system. And one of those is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And that's page 1038 in your pew Bible. Look there with me, if you would. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Very well-known passage where Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, briefly, this passage teaches us that we're saved by grace and not by works. 
And that's exactly what this passage teaches, and it's exactly what this passage means. You know, there's been lots of, uh, uh, of ink spilled and lots of, of voices that have cried out in, in, uh, in, in preaching and teaching and debating the nature of salvation. And, you know, people will talk about salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, etc. All of the alones or the solas of Protestant Reformation and that sort of thing. And there, there are folks that would say, well, we're not saved by anything alone. Well, that's not exactly true. We are saved by one, one thing alone, God alone. We're saved by God alone, right? Can anybody save you other than God? You're saved by God alone. And how does God save those that he saves? Well, he saves them by grace. Does he save them by grace plus their works? No, absolutely not. God, everyone who God saves, he saves by grace. It's a free gift. He saves by bestowing his favor upon them. And that is the only thing that saves them. We are, in fact, saved by grace alone. Then we get to the word faith, and that's where things get a little complicated. Because there are, of course, many folks in Christendom that say we're saved by faith alone. Well, I mean, maybe so, maybe so, maybe not. Let's look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Uh, turn over there, if you would, to James chapter 2. Let's read that together. James 2, verses 14 through 28 this is a very important and an equally misunderstood uh, passage for sure. Verse 14, beginning. James writes, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, the New King James doesn't do the best job of translating the Greek here in the latter part of this passage. Some of your versions will say something like this. Can that faith save him? That's the Greek. That's the intent of the passage. Okay, so if you, if you have the wording here like the New King James, it's not a false or bad translation. It's just none of them are perfect, and every translation has its strengths and weaknesses, and this is a weakness here, okay? And so this, this, this weak reading of the Greek here has led people to say something along the line. Well, James 2 is saying that salvation is not, you know, by faith, by itself. It's faith plus works that saves people. That is not what James 2 is saying. Follow me along as we go through the rest of the text here. He then illustrates the question, verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some will, someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? Verse 22 is the key to this text. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now this passage teaches us that faith, saving faith is not mere belief. That's the bottom line of this passage from James chapter 2. That saving faith is not mere belief. 
And I have to bring this up, and I bring it up in the context of two passages that are often pitted against each other by certain Bible scholars. Martin Luther had a real problem with the book of James. Of course, Martin Luther, oftentimes seen as the, you know, the starting point of the Protestant Reformation, nailed his 95 thesis on the door of the uh, church in Wittenberg, Germany. And uh, so when James, or when, when uh, Martin Luther rather was talking about the book of James, he said something like, Geschunktegar, Geschichtsmanith, I don't know, I don't speak German. But whatever he said in German, it was, James is a right strawy old epistle. Now, I don't know how you say that in German. I just figured it sounded like the gibberish I just said. I like to hear people talk in German. But what he said was that it's a right straw epistle. He's basing that on what Paul says about things being judged in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You know, when he talks about uh, the, uh, each one's work being tried or tested by fire. It's actually chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Each one's uh, work being tested by fire. If it's, if it's hay or straw or stubble, it'll be burned up. In other words, he's saying the book of James doesn't meet the requirements of being canonical, he really rejected it as being a canonical book because he understood James 2 as somehow contradicting Ephesians 2. And listen, brothers and sisters, let me be transparent and be in the light here. The way that Paul chose to write and the way that James chose to write, James chapter 2, does make this a tricky text. It does make it a tricky text. And that's okay. God doesn't have to spoon-feed us every biblical truth. And in fact, some of the ways that He, through the Holy Spirit, has chosen to inspire the Word for us forces us to have to think very, very carefully, very diligently to make sure that we come to the correct interpretation of a thing, all right? That we come to the correct interpretation of a thing. And so in this passage, I want you to notice verse 22. I said that was the key to this text. Do you see that faith was working together with His works, and by works faith was made perfect? That Greek word teleos for perfect here is also translated complete in some of your Bible versions, which is what we mean when we say this word in English. And so what was Abraham saved by? Was he saved by his works? Of course he was not saved by his works. His works were tainted by sin, as were Paul's. Abraham was saved by grace through faith, plus nothing else. But faith is not simply believing. Faith is trusting. Faith is trusting enough that I'm going to take action about what it is that I've come to believe. And so John 3.16, when it says, whosoever believes, or the King James, whosoever believeth, whenever John 3.16 says, whosoever believes, listen, I want you to understand, it means what it says. It's not a case of Synecdoche, and I won't get into that where a part is representative of the whole. I've heard it preached that way. But John 3.16 is true, but belief there means synecdoche. It's just a part that stands for the whole. No, if Jesus spoke these words, it's debatable whether Jesus said this to Nicodemus or whether John is narrating on the situation that starts in John 3 between Jesus and Nicodemus. It doesn't matter. Regardless, John 3 is the truth. And so when John writes these words, whosoever believes, he means that. Because if you really believe, brothers and sisters, listen, if you really believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you really believe that, then you know that He is the Lord, He is the Messiah, you know that He is God's chosen King. And if you know that, and you believe that, you're going to do what He says. You're going to make an effort, a sincere, loyal effort to do what He says. 
It's all of the religious debates between folks that have made these passages more complicated than they need to be. It's really simple. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I know that you do. And if you're working with someone and trying to bring them to the point of obedience to the gospel, they might be saved, and you ask them, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And they say yes. It ought not to take any further discussion to say, well, let's, let's go right now and let's baptize you into Christ. Because that's simply what a believer will do. And because of all of the debates about, well, okay, belief, all right, I have to believe in Jesus. And I know faith really means more than just believe. It means trust. This is what James is trying to get across in James chapter 2. And if I really trust, it means that I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. If I really believe, I'm going to start acting like I believe. That's the point of James chapter 2. And that's where Ephesians 2 and James chapter 2 do not contradict at all. They're simply talking about how we're saved from two different kinds of perspectives. And both of them are giving us a clear picture of one side of the truth of this subject. At the end of the day, when you stand before Jesus' throne in judgment, and we all will, listen, at the end of this world, at the end of your life, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there will only be one thing that can save you. One thing can save you, and that is His grace, His willingness to forgive you of your sins and clean your slate and say to you, even though you don't deserve it, well done, good and faithful servant, and in the joy of your Lord. You cannot earn it because all your righteousness is as filthy rags. You cannot earn it because, as Jesus himself said, if we have done all that us, we've only done what we ought to have done, and we're still unprofitable servants. In order to do more than is required and is expected of us, more than just meeting the bar of what God expects of humanity, you've got to do more than obey everything that he has ever commanded. If you want to earn a reward, can you accomplish that, brother? Can you accomplish that, sister? Can you do more than what God has asked of you? Let me tell you the answer to the question. You can't even do what God has asked of you. You can't even do that. At the end of the day, you're saved by grace plus nothing. Through faith plus nothing. That's not contradicting what James says. When you get the context of James chapter 2, he's not saying grace plus works or faith plus works. He's saying if your faith is real, it works. It will work. It will act in response to the commandment that God has given. And John 3.16 is by implication teaching that very same thing. I've taught this before and it needs to be summarized regularly. Saving faith consists of three components. It consists of knowledge of the truth, truth that is understood and believed. And, and John 3.16 certainly teaches that. If you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, that is if you don't give mental assent to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, you cannot be saved. John 8 and verse 24, Jesus made it very clear. Unless you believe that I am He, that is the Messiah, you will die in your sins. That's the promise of the Word of God. But, but faith is more than belief. It is trusting in the promises and in the promiser, the one that made those promises. And it thus involves a response. If Jesus says that uh, repentance is required, Acts 17, 30, and 31, then if you believe, you're going to repent. If the Bible says that baptism now saves us, 1 Peter 3, verse 21, and it does, then if you believe in the gospel, you will be baptized. And these are just not even questions that should be asked. 
It's only because of the debates that have happened over the last uh, 10 centuries plus that, um, that we have any confusion about these passages at all. And so we read in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's the end of this context here in John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so when we take in the whole of the context of John chapter 3, it begins with Jesus teaching uh, Nicodemus about the new birth, and the new birth is of the water and the spirit. All the ancient sources agree. That teaches us that believers are to be baptized, and that's when the new birth occurs by the power of the Holy Spirit. We get through the middle of the passage. We're looking at the, the core truth, the basic gospel that it all is built upon, that is the reason why there's a possibility to be born again to begin with, and that's because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. All the truth that Paul is bringing out later in the letters or the epistles, the truth that James, the Lord's half-brother, is bringing out in James chapter 2 are simply confirming the whole of the teaching of John chapter 3, that if you believe in the Son, you will obey the Son, and if you will not obey the Son, you don't believe. And that's true. That's the, eyes, that's the judgment of God upon this whole human race. And I hope that makes sense. I hope it makes sense. Romans 11 verse 6 says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Is that verse hard to understand? It doesn't seem that hard to understand to me. Galatians 5 verse 4, Paul says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, that is works of the law. You've fallen away from grace. There are folks in Christendom that try to make the New Testament into the Law of Moses 2.0. They want to make the Law of Moses into the, or, or the New Testament into the same kind of a system that the Law of Moses was. And the only thing they recognize is that one has been fulfilled and taken out of the way and replaced by another. But, but what has happened is not just a replacement of one law with another. What has happened can be truly called the Law of Christ as you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, a New Testament system is the law of Christ. But, but it's, it's, that means something entirely different than the law of Moses does. The New Testament system works in a different way. And there are very few Christians today that are tempted to go back and say, well, let's all go out and get circumcised and become Jews, those, who haven't, those for whom that pertains. Let's go get circumcised. Let's start keeping the law of Moses again. And let's make everybody that wants to become a Christian say, you've got to become a Torah-following Jew first. This was a problem in the ancient world. It's not so much of a problem today. But there's a parallel problem, and that is Christians today that want to make the New Testament into just a law system. And that creates nothing other than a salvation system on the basis of works. And brothers and sisters, if the New Testament works the way that the Old Testament does, then you will only live if you keep the commandments. You say, well, I'm, I'm keeping the commandments on a daily basis. I stumble sometimes. No, 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 no. You're not keeping the commandments then. Is that clear? James 2 verse 10, whosoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, do you know how the passage concludes? He has become guilty of all. Either you keep it or you don't. Either you're a law keeper or you're a law breaker. How many laws must you break in order to enter into that classification of individuals who are now known as law breakers? One. One. If the New Testament system is a law system, meaning a system whereby you work your way into the favor of God, you're lost and you have no hope. 
because that kind of a system does two things. It identifies sin and it condemns the sinner. And that's all it does. And it's righteous to do it. The New Testament is more than that. It is a system of faith. Trust becomes, in the eyes of God, law-keeping. That's the New Testament system. When I trust in Jesus, the one who perfectly kept the law, I will obey his teachings. That will lead me through repentance. It will lead me through the waters of baptism to be added to the Lord's church. Acts 2 and verse 47. I will then be in Christ, clothed with Christ. Galatians 3 and verse 27. And therefore God will look upon, because of my faith, what puts me in Christ, obedient faith, puts me in Christ. When I'm in Christ, God looks at me and sees the perfection of Christ. When you're a baptized believer, God looks at you and sees law-keeping. Perfect law keeping because you're clothed in the likeness of his son. That's how the New Testament system works, brothers and sisters. That's how it works. And how can God look at me and see Jesus? Not by my works, brothers and sisters, not by my works, only by my faith. So what does this mean to us? The final question in this series, the son of God, what does it mean to us? Well, in the section just preceding John 3, verse 16, listen to these two verses, verses 13 through 15, three verses. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Right after John 3, 16, verse 17 and 18, it tells us that the one who doesn't believe in Jesus is condemned already. And we get these reasons in the three verses preceding John 3, 16. Two things. Number one, there's only one person who's ever brought a message from heaven as a human being. That's Jesus. It's him. What is he implying by that? Speaking to Nicodemus, what is he implying? Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, what's Jesus saying to him in this statement? He's saying, Nicodemus, you don't know anything. You don't know anything. What does this say to me? What does this say to you about our knowledge of, of how we could somehow make ourselves right with God? I don't know anything. I, I've never been to heaven. I've never ascended to heaven and walked in the throne room of God and asked him, Oh, great Jehovah, what is required of one who would win your favor? I've never done that, neither of you. Jesus came from that very place, and he came with that very message. And then he uses this great illustration, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, do you know the story? Do you know that Old Testament story? Because of the people's sins, God allowed poisonous snakes to come into the camp of the people of Israel while they were in the period of wilderness wandering before they came to the promised land. Poisonous snakes started biting people. That's poisonous snakes in a, in a crowded camp tend to do. If you get bit by a poisonous snake, reality kicks in real quick. You're going to die, you're going to get very sick, one of the two. And in God's mercy and His grace, listen, please listen. In God's mercy and His grace, even though the people deserved the snakes, even though God inflicted the snakes upon them as an act of judgment that they deserved. God told Moses to make the image of a serpent, put it up on a pole, and set it up in a camp. 
And anybody in Israel that had been bitten by one of those poisonous snakes could make their way to that, that serpent lifted up on the pole in the middle of the camp. And if they looked upon it, they would be healed. And the poison would take no effect. Jesus says, that serpent on the pole stands for me. And you, Nicodemus, have been bitten by the poisonous snake already. And you and them and us all, by the time we come to an age of accountability, have already been bitten. The poison is already in your system. And you're going to die. You're going to die for your sins. And that's why Jesus says what he says in this context. That's why the world is condemned already. Because the world has already been bitten by the serpent. And is dying. And you've got no claim to make. You don't deserve the cross. You deserve the serpent. And you deserve his fate. The only claim that you've got to make is that the greatest one has done the greatest thing imaginable in order to give you the hope of surviving, and not only so, but of eternal life. For God, the greatest giver, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company that he gave, the greatest sacrifice, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever the greatest opportunity believeth the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest attraction should not perish, the greatest promise, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. Have you confessed the name of Christ? Have you made the decision to obey him? Faith obeys him. Have you been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? If you're an age of accountability today and you have not done so, you need to look upon the serpent and be saved, not the serpent, but the son and be saved. My friend, you're dying without him and you need him. And this morning, if you are a baptized believer and need the prayers of this assembly, the front pews are open. Come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.